Today on Rebuilders, we are exploring a notion that we brought up in the previous episode of building discernment capacity. What's that going to look like, Mark? Well, we're going to talk about the news, but not just talk about the news. Mm -hmm. We're going to ask the question of how do we discern the news? What are the big plot lines? How do we see the trends that are occurring? And then how do we sort of do that? So we're equipped with frameworks, not just to be always being overwhelmed by the news, but understanding what's going on. And then we're going to ask the question, how do we do that biblically? Great. So we're moving from being reactive to reflective in our consumption of the news. If you want to know more about this episode or uh, hear about some of the resources that we explored, you can head to rebuilders.co and subscribe to our mailing list. Let's get into it. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Lydia. I'm here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both? Doing very well, thank you. Great. Great yeah. to hear. Mark? Uh, um, uh, it's freezing in Melbourne. It really like, is. It's really cold. Mm. Thus, the beanie and the jacket. And yeah, I'm wearing the jacket too. I'm really glad. Yeah. <laughs> I was in New Zealand uh, you were last week, of, which was uh, great. Week before. Week before. Got to. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Lydia. Yeah, no worries. Um, <laughs> got to visit uh, Auckland, uh, Wellington, Christchurch, and great to connect with. Um, Lots of listeners. Yeah. Um, got to do it in the UK recently and now New Zealand. It's just, I want to say kia ora to all of our Kiwi listeners. Great to mm. meet you in person. And it was just cool, like people obviously listen to podcasts, but follow the pastries. And <laughs> yeah. Actually, a number of people asked me about the Toyota update. Uh, you know, how's oh, my yeah. Toyota? Do we have a Toyota update? <sighs> how, hang on. When, when did you put the – how long's yeah, it been? When how did you long put I think it was 1979. <laughs> 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 no, uh, it's a year now, I think. A uh, year. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Which marks, you know, how long we've been doing this. But what, so talking, I'm, talking, talking about, about your car. <laughs> so I'm keeping the the you know the the secondhand Honda Odyssey going. Yeah. But on Saturday, we actually had a a, a church sort of families uh, thing on Saturday night. Went bowling, which was great. Mm. But uh, as everyone else departed, we were outside on the top <laughs> of this third story car park of um, a you know where the bowling was and. I was trying to warm up the car, you know, just for the family so they'd have a pleasant, you know, ride home. And it just completely died, the Odyssey. <laughs> and it was stuck on top of it. Like, died. Had, it died. Well, it not died. it's not dead. There's been well, I've got to go and pick it up for the mechanics yeah, today. Yeah, but yeah. a bit of a Yeah. So it, it just stopped working. But then what happens when your car's stuck on top of a three story Parking lot. When you parking just, facility. You just push it off the edge? Yeah. Well, I, I so wish. they do in the movies. I'd be happy. If someone else had done that, I'd be happy to get the insurance. But um, <laughs> So it took 48 hours to get it down. Not – we had to wait get for the same. Oh. <laughs> Man. So anyway. So that's, lift it off. That's the Toyota update. But I did see – No, hold on. That's not the Toyota update. That's, that's the, the Honda that's, Odyssey so that's update. That's the Honda Odyssey update. But – so I'm still waiting on my car. But okay. I did see today in the news that um, the Taliban – uh, I didn't know this was a thing. But so the tel from Toyota to the Taliban. The Taliban are digging up the founder of the Taliban's Toyota Corolla, which has been buried since 2001 when the US went into uh, Afghanistan to get the Taliban after September 11th. And he escaped in a Corolla, Toyota Corolla, and they buried it so they couldn't find him. And it's been in plastic <laughs> underground for, what, 20 years? And they're going to put it in a museum. I mean, it's amazing. First of all, best getaway car, yes. Toyota yeah, Corolla. It was inconspicuous. It is mm. inconspicuous. Who, and, you know, as they say, Corolla. Toyotas are reliable cars. They are. They're buried. I, want, I wonder if it will start after after being buried. Do you reckon you'll do that with the Odyssey? 
<laughs> nah, nah. We'll dig there. a hole out. I'm trading that thing in. I'm trading that thing in. Like, I think put it in a museum in 20 years could be worth a mint. Well, I'll, I'll hand it over to you for safe. Well, can I'm, we bury it? We'll bury it behind the office. I'm just looking at yeah. the article you sent through. This is a statement from Toyota at the time, 2001. Toyota has a strict policy not to sell vehicles to potential purchasers who may use or modify them for paramilitary or terrorist activities. Mm. So, well, there's the real reason yeah, Mark's the real not reason getting his car. Getting car. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're on to us. They're like, is this guy going to use but it for paramilitary? We've listened to some of these rubles this episode. <laughs> so this, you know, yeah. yes. uh, well, yes, the Toyota, ever the um, emblem of the supply chain issues that we've talked about on numerous occasions on this podcast. I did think so, just, just one yeah, final. Sure. Like I was thinking the other day, and I won't do this, but – I realized like because we've been talking about this so much, like when they when they come to give me my when I finally get it, yeah. Could I use the podcast as a leverage? Oh, let's live stream it. Live stream the pickup. Like like live just stream yeah. it first. No, no, but like could I get a cheaper price? Ah. Oh. Because like I said, oh get a you know, get a guys. Uh you probably don't know this, but I've been talking about this for a year yeah. on a on a on a podcast. podcast. People all over the world. Would they be uh, our first sponsor? In like, no, I was just <laughs> wanted to get like 500 bucks off or something. <laughs> That's sort of a sponsorship. And yeah. what kind of Discount. deal are you going to do us? And then you guys come out with the camera equipment, great, yeah. and great. and put the pressure on live stream it. How, how much of a deal can you do? I feel like the person who's dropping it off will have no say in the matter, yeah, yeah, true. And, um, yeah, I mean, you never know. Yeah, mm. if, if he's if he's if he's dug it up with a shovel, yeah. then, we, then we know we're in trouble. Oh, mate, I, I just, won't be leveraging. I just dug this up um, mm. could down you, the road. Mark, could you tell the difference between a Corolla and a Camry? Yes. Okay, that's good. Because I used to have a Corolla. <laughs> oh, great! And I'm about to have a Camry. Okay, good. I can tell you the difference. What? One's a smaller car. The yes. Corollas are well, a smaller no, you, car. You had an old, the old Camrys. Uh, yes. Sorry, the old. You had a, you had a station wagon. Yes. Yeah, yes. they they still come in a station wagon, but they're yeah. a smaller car, so they're True. a smaller passenger True. vehicle, smaller engine. Mm. Thanks for tuning in to yeah, Toyota <laughs> sponsored by sponsored by Toyota sizes. and the Taliban. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> Sorry, not we're not sponsored by the Taliban. In case anyone was wondering, that yeah. was a joke that I said that has nothing to do with Daniel and Liddy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh well, good. I'm glad we've uh, we've sorted that out, and uh, we have no mm. affiliations with uh, terrorist groups. <clears throat> no. Last week, here's our my again very smooth segue into the content for today. Last uh, week we talked about uh, building discernment capacity, mm. and part of doing that is equipping people to be able to navigate what is happening in the world and understand how it uh, impacts the local church impacts individuals and yeah be empowered to approach mm. that with knowledge yeah and, and and i think like one of the things that we've done on rebuilders is obviously talk about leadership and mm. talk about things going on in the church and and faith and intersection between culture and faith but also it's been helping people interpret the news and what's yes. going on and i think like the last sort of week or two has just been one of those crazy crazy news cycles yeah where in talking to people about it, you know, I've heard the statement multiple times, the world is just going crazy. Mm. And, you know, I think I realised that what we can do is we can fill episodes of us interpreting and analysing what's going on. Um, but also I think in the in the heart behind this 
this podcast and why we're doing this is also to equip people. So I thought actually today, why don't we do two things? Mm. Talk about some of the sort of news things that have been happening um, in the world, analyze them, but also equip people to analyze them. One of the mm. questions I get asked all the time is what's the best news source to read? What's you know, completely unbiased. And honestly, I don't have to answer that because they're all got their own biases yeah. in some ways and all got their own angles and not one's perfect. Um, so I think a better thing is to to look really what are the trend lines behind the news? Mm -hmm. What's the bigger historical context that these different stories that we see in the world happening? Because often they'll burst mm -hmm. onto the news with some often extreme piece of footage Yes. Which captures the world attention for 48 hours and then we move on to the next big news story. And I thought it'd be good to play, you know, almost learn how to discern. If we, if we, talk, if we talked about last week of how to build up our discernment capacity, mm. why don't we equip people to do that today? Yeah, yeah, great. So um, <clears throat> I thought what could be good is maybe to talk about three things that, that are in the news mm -hmm. that, that would be good for help to help, you know, analyze a little bit. Um, but then also, what if, um, in a sense, you guys, I helped you yes. uh, uh, learn how to discern these things, which is a way of helping um, those listening how to discern and ask what are the bigger trend lines going mm. on with these stories? Great. I mean, I'm willing to give it a go. Are you, Daniel? Sure am. Great. Yep. Yep. Um, one thing that you said was that it's moving from uh, like a reactive to a reflective consumption of the news. Yes. And I think um, I know for me personally for a long time I have, well, back in the day a few years ago, found news quite overwhelming yes. and rather than engaging with it or knowing how to best engage with it, I just didn't engage with it at all. Yes. Um, which ultimately as as leaders and wanting to grow in our understanding of what God is doing in the world um, and helping to lead others in that it's really actually valuable totally. to be able to navigate the news, not be overwhelmed by it, but understand it within the context of, of God's creation um, and what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And I think that, that re reactive to reflective is really key. A lot of news is actually done to get hits and clicks today. Yes. So it's done in a way to actually make you react. Mm. And what that does is it sometimes takes things out of their historical or cultural context so we're having all these reactions, but it's dizzying because there's no context behind it. It's yeah. just like extreme things all of the time. And also uh, to a certain extent, it's impossible to have an understanding of all of the contexts within yes. which, uh, you know, uh, news events are occurring. Yes. Um, yeah. So having having some tools to approach it is really helpful. And I think as well, like I think often people have also said to me, oh, how do we – you know, how do we sort of do what you do, Mark, and learn all this stuff? I'm not expecting people to learn all this stuff. Like part of the reason I often deep dive into this stuff because I'm just generally interested. Like mm. it's a bit of a hobby in a thing. So it's not that people need to know all of the details and understand what's happening in the Bulgarian election or something. It's more understanding how to read things in the bigger, you know, to find the signal in the midst of the of the noise. Mm. And to use the Nate Silver, title of Nate Silver's book, like it's it's – What's the stuff that I really need to hear? What's the big trend lines? How that's going to affect the world? Um, what's in play? I think that's the real skill. That's more reflective. Like you think reactive, you're, you know, it's an emotional, instantaneous thing where reflective, you're stepping back and watching the bigger picture. Yes. Mm. I'll uh, say, sorry, just quick, um, just Romans 12, 2 comes to mind mm. in this as well, where Paul talks 
It is like he says, like, do not be conformed to this world, but yes. be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yes. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good mm. and acceptable. Mm. Um, like there, there's a biblical mandate for us to be able to discern yeah. Yeah. these things, and mm. and um, which I think is so important as as mm. leaders and Christians in this world. Mm. Mm. And almost that conforming to the world is conforming to the world's analysis patterns. Mm. Yes. Of yes. the news yes. where. You know, the renewing of our minds is to see things but see them differently through the mind of Christ and spiritual vision. And I think, I mean, that also highlights just um, a lot of the things that you explored in your book, A Non-Anxious Presence, Mm. like coming to all situations from a a solid, um, balanced, stable Mm. foundation that Mm. is found only in Christ um, when the rest of the world is in a lot of chaos. Mm. Yes. Mm. Well, shall we have a bit of an explorer of a few yes. big ticket news items? Yes. Um, yeah. Obviously, the last <laughs> the last week has been hectic. Yes. Mm. Let's start with Boris. Boris Johnson. That seems like five weeks ago. <laughs> I mean, just, just to illustrate the point. Can we get Boris's full name? It's just fantastic. Like his full name um, is incredible. Boris Johnson. Oh, hang on. Okay. Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson. De what now? Feffel. P-F-E-F-F-E-L. Amazing. Incredible. Never even heard that name. Yeah. There you go. Fantastic. Um, And actually it's such a fascinating like background in terms of his sort of different family lineages, Turkish, um, Mm. Russian, French, I think, English. Yeah. Ah. And sort of like Jewish, Muslim, Christian, all these fascinating backgrounds, like quite a quite a sort of the diverse house, family. The House tree. of Feffel. The House of Feffel. Is Fefel. a Bavarian German noble family originally from Newburg. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, sorry, I'm not pronouncing the rest of that in Bavaria. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I don't know don't know my Bavarian very well. <laughs> <laughs> That's more than okay, Daniel. <laughs> um so, so what, what, why don't we do this? So what I'll do is I will sort of talk about the news event, mm-hmm. sketch it out a little bit, and then I'm going to get you guys to ask what the bigger trend lines to the story is. Yep. So Boris Johnson, both the British Prime Minister and the leader of the Conservative Party, the Tories, uh, basically faced an internal revolt, um, interestingly from his own party, mm. um, who effectively had felt that he'd lost integrity. Now, part of the reason um, Boris uh, gained ascendancy was there was a sense within the party that he could win elections and he did win the election. That even though many of them found him quite frustrating, um, distracted uh, to work with, uh, sort of his hair is a little bit of a <laughs> tell there, yeah. the messages of his hair. It's a visual yeah. metaphor. Um, that there was something about his personality that captured the public's attention and that, you know, resulted in in, in a significant election win. But uh, particularly uh, a number of different things, which I won't go through all of, but particularly the fact that he led the country through the pandemic and a lot was asked of the British public, like many publics around the world, in terms of lockdowns and denying movement and stuff for a greater cause. Uh, when it was discovered that actually he wasn't following those rules himself and created a bit of an unaccountable uh, environment within um, number 10 Downing Street where people were having parties and so on. And obviously this caused a lot of pain for people who, you know, some quite you know, emotional scenes in Parliament as different MPs 
talked about not being able to be with their parents when they passed away. Mm. At the same time this was happening, photos came out. So this has been boiling away for some time. But sort of the straw that broke the camel's back was one of the sort of responses that different institutions and organisations around the world have had is to set up good sort of um, reporting mechanisms for things like sexual harassment. Um, obviously, that one of them was in the um, you know the British Conservative Party had, but it was the revelation that he had knowingly put into the position of the person who you go and report this stuff to was a particular uh, MP or Member of Parliament who there were actual allegations of sexual harassment against himself. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was the straw which broke the camel's back. And, you know, there was just a raft of resignation. So sort of over 48 hours. People had been resigning for some time, but members of his own party and members of his cabinet were resigning. Um, And then finally, you know, it came out, was it Monday last week or something, that, you know, he's going to make a statement to the nation um, and interesting. Oh, sorry. Before that, it was interesting. One of the sort of key moments, Michael Gove, who was sort of like his partner in the whole Brexit thing, mm. you know, a sort of senior figure within the Conservative Party. Uh, they've known each other. You know, he went to Boris and basically said, mate, it's time to go. And Boris sacked him. <laughs> spot. Yeah, or, well. you know, like I think he's, I think was, the story was he said something like, you know, it's time to go by nine o'clock tonight. And Boris messaged him at 8.59 and sacked him. Um, so uh, the normal protocol that someone, when they're tapped on the shoulder, um, Margaret Thatcher was tapped on the shoulder and by her own party and, and went and uh, Theresa May. And, you know, you've, you've had these moments where in politics, not just the British Conservative Party, but perhaps in an organisation where the sort of inner circle, your confidants, your <coughs> closest allies come and say, I think time's up mm-hmm. for the best of the party, the organisation, the nation, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's time to go. Now, that happened numerous times, not just with Michael Gove and Boris didn't go. Um, but then finally Boris said, well, he's going to go at some stage after the autumn or something. So there's this indeterminate period when he'll step down and there's currently a, a Tory party leadership race on at the moment. So everyone sort of wants to be the next prime minister. Mm. Um, so for those who don't know, perhaps listening in America, prime ministers, same as in Australia and many Westminster countries, are actually chosen not by the public in a presidential-style election but actually by the members of the party. So the party wins the right to govern, and then they choose a prime minister. Um, so what's interesting is more Boris's behaviour that normally you would go, but Boris is continuing. Boris's aide, Dominic Cummings, a former aide who's fallen out with, you know, is saying he's trying to stay. You know, all rumours flying around that he he wants to stay so he can marry his girlfriend in Chequers, which is sort of the prime minister's residence outside of the city. Um, so really in many ways, the question some people are asking, what if he doesn't go? Britain's in a partic- particularly constitutional crisis. And I think after a number of the crises Britain's, have, Britain's had, you know, COVID and, and Brexit and so on, you know, this is sort of, again, uncharted waters that, again, mm. another country find itself in. So that's the the sketching of the situation. Mm-hmm. How would you guys read this as part of a bigger trend line that we're observing? Some of the narratives we've been telling in this in this podcast. Uh, what would you see that this tells us about our culture, about leadership? Discuss. I think one thing that comes up for me when uh, – so we've talked a lot about institutions and how uh, – in grey zone, in a networked world, institutions have lost the power that they once had. Yes. That power has become decentralised. So I feel like there's a bit of that going on in mm. terms of the institution of um, 
the Conservative Party in the in Britain or UK. How do I? Is that oh, yeah? Either. Both right. Yeah. Um, England <laughs> well, no not longer. England. Oh, okay. <laughs> not no, <yeah>. <laughs> it's the whole of the United Kingdom. Okay. No longer um, represents what it did, but maybe that's only because the leader himself doesn't represent what the institution is supposed to be about and he's a bit of a um maybe you've talked before also about leaders who are kind of um that that um uh like a bit of a cowboy figure like the um the cowboy the rogue yes um and and boris johnson in a way seems like that yes to me in the way that you've kind of explained um, what he's doing in the party is like, well, I'm not going to conform to the rules. Yeah. I'm going to do my own thing. So, mm. so all of the rules and the structures that made the party function before don't hold up when somebody doesn't follow those structures and mm. those things that are in place. So I'm kind of seeing that going on. I think in a previous Rebuilders episode, we talked about the fact that politics in many places, and then I think I applied this to the church, has become about campaigning, not governing. Yes. And so you get these people coming into power who are almost campaigning all the time. Like Donald Trump started his campaign when he was president, you know, still. And so you get these people where if you're going to do that, you want someone who captures a sort of distracted public's attention. You Mm. want a personality. You want a character. Uh, And Boris was, you know, whatever you think of him, effective at doing that in the sense that he won government and captured the public's attention and not just the public but people around the world yeah. were very aware of the British election um, and perhaps you know he was a character and say someone like a Theresa May or David Cameron wasn't and he um, uh, but then governing really difficult completely you know from even his own party completely disorganized and you know I think one of the analogies I spoke about was in the church it's almost like we've become good at gov- campaigning getting people into the yes, church building yes, yes, yes. running <laughs> programs but actually discipling them is like our version of governing yeah um uh, so I think that's good there's some other interesting things about institutions I'll, I'll hold off on a second because I want to hear what what uh, that, that you brought up there which are yeah. really good points I want to wait but Daniel what's your thoughts mm, I think in um a couple of thoughts. One, and probably off the back of Liddy, is just mm. how just the like the parties need, uh, like we need a. It's about getting in power, and so who's yes. who's gonna, who's actually gonna get us that, um, get us that position, I suppose, um, versus which kind of leads into my second thought of around just character, mm. of it's it seems to be an emphasis on having someone who can rep or. Oh, who can hold power um, or who can be in power but not necessarily have the character to hold power and govern well. But then <clears throat> talked about, uh, was it Chris Pincher, mm. the, the guy who mm. came in, like even just the, his character in mm. like being in power but having this, yeah, this past of mm. um, alleged. Alleged. Sexual, alleged past. sexual yeah, harassment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, yeah, I think that's. Yeah, issues of issues of character, issues of the heart that mm. um, seem to surface pretty quick mm. when power is given. So there's a book called How Democracies Die by um, Ziblatt and Levensky. Mm. Uh, I think I've got the names right there. And they say something really interesting. I, I can't remember if we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but they talk about the fact that institutions – are made up of things like governance and um, laws and bylaws and, you know, positions and their funding and so on. But there's a part of institutions that people often miss, which is which they say is these unspoken norms. Mm. There's certain things that all sides agree on. 
one of the things that all sides agree on is that if you get the tap on the shoulder, you go. You know, mm. so Brisbane doesn't have a written constitution. It's built a lot of the Westminster system has been, you know, I think one of the most sort of peaceful comparatively systems, not perfect, but been pretty stable. And that's our system as well. Is that there was things that if person, if someone came to you, they, they tapped you on the shoulder and said, if you, it, it, it's like if your best friends in an organization come to you and say, mate, we just need to hear this. It's time to go. Mm. You go mm. and you go with your pride intact and actually almost previously it was more shameful to stay in mm. than to go so was everyone humble who got the tap on the shoulder no margaret thatcher got the tap, tap on the shoulder was margaret thatcher a shy retiring violet who was humble no she you know she was a she was a proud woman who was a you know a sort of force of nature um so like many prime ministers and presidents are forces mm. of nature and proud people um, but there was this unwritten convention that if that happened, you went for the good of the country. And mm. they'd say that I'm going for the good of the country and it'd be, it'd be humiliating and horrible, mm. but, you know, they're going for the good of the country. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, what is marked, um, you know, and look, this could be said of both left and right. You know, I know we talk about the Conservative Party here and maybe people listening in Britain and other places, like what about the left? Yeah, same things happen on all sides of politics. But I think what we're seeing is we're seeing the reality that institutions are also as only as good as the character of the people who lead them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the unwritten norms was that, you know, there was a sense of character. Did people do dodgy things? Yes. Was there all kinds of nefarious things happening behind the scenes? Yes. Um, were institutions in the past some shining example to look to? No. But it was interesting. I, I – um, was just as I mentioned, I was in Queen uh, in New Zealand last week, and I was in Queenstown at the end of my trip. And on the foreshore of Queenstown, which is a town in New Zealand, it's on a, a lake, and um, there was a memorial to World War One. Mm -hmm. And I took a photo of it, and it's sort of like you walk through this arch, and above the arch is written uh, "Service over self." Mm. <laughs> and I thought that's fascinating. So that's part of the British Commonwealth. That that part it was part of the British Empire. And sort of written into that, was it always lived up to no? Was there problems with colonialism and classism and all these things? Yes. Mm. But also there was this sort of service over self thing was one of the unwritten norms. Mm. And we've seen that go out of um, fashion. So I would say one of the big trends we're seeing in the world is the continued decay of institutions, which lots of people are talking about. Yeah. But one of the keys is – to have healthy democracies, to have healthy institutions, you need character. And our culture has been undermining character quite aggressively mm. and promoting individualism and promoting self before ours. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, what we're seeing now, I think, is the the bitter fruit of that, mm. that process. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. I think also we read an article to, or we sent around an article which yeah. sort of touched on this by Helen Thompson in the New Statesman. Not so much talking about Boris, but she made this really interesting point that we're returning to an age where perhaps more like that service over self age, where if you look at the last sort of 30 years, economic um, uh, progress, all these sort of things going on, individualism, consumerism, and publics have not been asked anything by their governments. Yeah. Um, when the uh, uh, 9-11 happened and um, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, I think it was the Secretary of State, was he? Um, uh, he basically said, 
you know, this has happened. We want you to go and spend, buy stuff to get the American economy going. So mm. it wasn't like in World War II where people were having like rationing or even people were encouraged to sign up and go and serve militarily. Um, a lot of the military burden was was borne by people, um, you know, who were part of the military and a lot from, you know, poorer communities often. Um, but it wasn't this great, all right, we're all going to have to sacrifice for this. Mm. And Helen Thompson made the point that all, with COVID, everything changed. For the yeah. first time in generations, it was like you need to put the service of the, of, of the community or the state yeah. or whatever, the, the greater good above your personal wants. And that came as a shock to a lot of people. But she was talking about the fact that we're now heading into this new political realm where politicians are going to have to ask people to deny themselves, whether it's the environment or the economy mm. or whatever, um, and that's going to be a shock to lots of people. So I see that part of the reason that it's hard for them to do that is also a lot of leaders have put self over service yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, so they're that. not seeing the example <clears throat> from the top. Yes, yes. Interestingly, um, as you we were talking, I was thinking back to – my childhood and teenage years and there was a very significant drought in mm. Victoria um, and I feel like I was going back through my mind to figure out if there's been times where, you know, I've lived through the government or the council or local leadership asking people to sacrifice for the greater good and that's mm. the only time I can think of a collective push to reduce the amount of water we're using yes. because, you know, and over that period of time, there were so many farmers in regional Victoria that took their own lives, that had yes. to um, sell up and mm. move because there wasn't any water and mm. their farms weren't functional anymore. So I wonder um, if there are particular pockets in Western society that have kind of experienced this in a way, mm. um, but collectively as mm. a society mm. we haven't had to, mm. um, yeah, do things for the greater good necessarily. That's a great point because effectively there's a sense, and we to, this will probably intersect with where we're going next, mm. particularly amongst rural communities, <clears throat> that they have to carry a burden that people in cities don't. One yeah, of the big things of, of, of Western development, and not just in the West, but around the world in the last sort of 30, 40 years of development, is we've seen a mass movement of people to cities. You know, in Canada, um, you know, so a lot of people moving to cities. Um, cities were warm in winter, you know, all these different resources. Yeah. And, you know, to be in Toronto versus, you know, somewhere out in the sort of prairies or whatever. Um, but also those who've stayed behind, who've had to provide food and so on and gone through globalization, seen stuff moving off off the land, have felt that. And that that's around the world. That'll sort of intersect with where we go next. Great. Um would you like to move on? Uh, any other points as we finish up on that one or happy to move on to the next one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so, so should we summarise? Yeah, let's so do it. Big trends. Institutions are decaying. Yep. Not just because – well, there's lots of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is that some of those norms around sacrificing for a greater good are disappearing. Mm. And uh, that's one big trend line that we're seeing in the world. And we're moving into an era where – not just for institutions, but for all of us, there's perhaps going to be greater sacrifice asked of us. Yes. And character matters. Character and leadership, you know, character matters for leadership. Character matters for institutions. And sacrifice is part of character. Mm. Uh, yeah. Great. That's a lot deeper than scandal at Downing Street. Yeah, yeah. scandal. <laughs> Boris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at Boris's hair. Yeah. I'll probably still look at Boris's hair. It is pretty amazing. Mm. Uh, let's move to Sri Lanka. 
Yes. What's happening there? Well, Sri Lanka, I think we actually, I think I mentioned Sri Lanka maybe about four podcasts ago is something yeah. to keep an eye on. But I think the world's attention was very quickly upon Sri Lanka and many people have seen the, on the news or online images of literally tens of thousands of people mm. overtaking the presidential palace. Um, and President Rajapaksa fleeing, I think he's in the Maldives now. And effectively what has happened in Sri Lanka is government has fallen, presidential um, uh, palace or government you know, government house or whatever whatever the official name is was overtaken. Incredible scenes of like, you know, mm. 10 different people in his bed and people swinging, swimming in his swimming pools and, um, you know, full-blown sort of, you know, revolutionary images. Yeah. Um, Prime Minister's house I think was set on fire as well. And this has been brewing for weeks and weeks and weeks. Mm. But to understand really what's happened in Sri Lanka – um, you know, multiple things going on. You know, obviously, Sri Lanka has come through a civil war um, between the sort of Tamil uh, minority and the larger Sinhalese. Uh, Tamils tend to be Hindu. Uh, Sinhalese tend to be uh, Buddhist. Um, and and really, uh, you know, some of the country's ills go back to, you know, different, different explanations. Um, there's been accusations that, uh, you know, China has engaged uh, Sri Lanka mm -hmm. in what's called a debt trap as part of its Belt and Road Initiative, which is the sort of big infrastructure network that China wants to build in the world yes. as an alternate network to American globalization. And uh, Sri Lanka has been struggling to pay that. So China's gotten some strategic ports as part of its projection of power into the Indo-Pacific. Mm. Um, you, so you have massive debt leverage country. Uh, then you have in 2019, the terrorist attacks and, uh, by uh, Islamic uh, militants upon a number of churches, mm. um, which stopped um, or, or reduce some tourism, which, which uh, Sri Lanka has a lot of. You have COVID. Um, the government did okay in some of its COVID measures in Sri Lanka, but actually, you know, it stopped tourism. Some of the hope was that some of the main tourists that come are actually from Ukraine and Russia. Yep. You then have the Ukraine-Russia war, which not only stops the flow of tourists, but also the economic effects going in the world, which we're seeing in terms of rising prices, mm. fuel. We've talked about the rising price of fuel. We've talked about food shortages because of so much grain and fertilizer and stuff is produced in Belarus, mm. Russia, and Ukraine. Um, that means a big deal in a place yeah. where here it's like, you know, our bread's double the price or we're paying more for um, lettuce. 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 Um, yeah. uh, you literally had a situation where Sri Lanka runs out of fuel, medicines, key foods, and, you know, when people are living closer to sort of, you know, the, the poverty line, that has tremendous implications. Mm. And so you see rampant inflation and uh, the other big thing that um, has also happened is that the president declared that it's going to move very quickly to organic farming and that had tremendous effects. And there's different opinions. Some people say that shouldn't have happened at all. Other people are saying it was done poorly at the wrong time. So whatever side you come down on that. Uh, but you have a multiple series of crises happen at once and all of these cascade into these scenes of um, – you know, the presidential palace being overtaken, mm. our presidential residence being overtaken. Um, but what's interesting too, that wasn't just a moment where everyone got so angry that what was happening in Sri Lanka was part of a bigger protest movement that we've talked about on here before, mm -hmm. where you had a, a very well-organized um, protest movement, which was using traditional forms of protest. Um, but also um, networked protests. Yes. So we've seen this. This is this is Me Too. This is Black Lives Matter. This is protests we've seen in places like Chile over economics or, you know, you, you've seen around the world. Currently, we're also seeing 
um, which has been getting the news in, in Holland and in the Netherlands. We also have protests. We have farmers. This is where we're returning to your yes. your previous point. Um, a sense of uh, a lot of the protesters were actually from uh, farmers in 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 Sri Lanka, um, but we're seeing farmers in, in the Netherlands, which is now spreading to Germany and in even Italy, where <coughs> similar thing as government government. Um, uh, policies around moving towards more environmental sustainable forms of agriculture they're saying we can't do this we're going to lose money you know th there's a cost here so they're doing all kinds of things like blockading government houses covering the german dutch border in manure um, <laughs> wow. but what's really and even in the uk i saw that uh with fuel prices going up people on the motorways um like taxi drivers and truck drivers i think it was doing go slow you mm. know so on, on the M25 or whatever it is, you know, going slow. So everything slows down. Yeah. Now, this is a tactic that uh, John Robb talks about in his book, which is a very prescient book written maybe 10 years ago called Brave New War, where he said the world's a network and in the future war will be people using and attacking the network. Mm. So to drive a car slow on a, on a freeway. And it, what's interesting too is some of the protest movements that we saw in the freedom protests, um, I'm using inverted commas, during the pandemic mm. in places like Canada with trucks coming to Ottawa, you're now seeing that adopted for a different cause in the Netherlands yes. over farming. Um, you've seen massive convoys in India, farmers' um, rights. So you're seeing this really interesting thing where people are using the network and attacking the network, but a lot of it is actually, we've talked about polarization, but I think what's really missed, a lot of people have missed in terms of polarization discussions because perhaps those discussions are driven by people who are younger, live in urban centers, is one of the big polarizations happening in the world is between rural and city people, mm. uh, big structural ones in the world. So it was interesting, I'll end this little sketch here. We studied Sri Lanka, but we've gone broader. Uh, I was listening to a, uh, a report from the Globe and Mail in Canada and they're talking about in Ottawa they had another freedom protest. Now, many of the mandates and restrictions that the sort of um, freedom movement in, in Canada was protesting have been against have been lifted, but they sort of turned up anyway mm. and they're almost looking for a new cause. And I'm going to predict, it's a mugs game to predict, um, <laughs> but I'm going to do but it. Here you are. <laughs> I'm going to do it and I could be wrong and I hope I'm wrong. But I sense we're going to start to see as the world, I think, possibly moves into a recession. If in well, either two things happen: inflation keeps going, um, or central banks pull back inflation by raising interest rates, which causes a recession. Economic difficult times are ahead. There's already an anti-elite, anti-urban um, sentiment, and what we could see is with something like the freedom movement. You know, you, you saw Wellington. <laughs> Parliament in Wellington, you mm. know, surrounded, I think it was for eight days and, and sort of blockades have on fire having to be cleared by the New Zealand police. You saw Ottawa shut down. Um, you saw as part of um, uh, the protest movement more around the election in the US, um, you know, this capital right. You saw in Australia, old Parliament House set on fire. You've seen stuff like this around the world. Now, the issue with the freedom stuff is you are only ever going to reach a certain percentage of the population who were frustrated around vaccines, frustrated around mandates. As much as there was discontent there, it was not a majority in most countries. Mm. So you had a freedom movement in Australia. We had a couple of days of writing here in Melbourne, but the polling was always a minority of people. Now, if they can tie that energy, there's this protest energy out there of discontent, and a lot of people feel like the world's changing too fast, I'm discontent. If they can connect that to economic issues and inequality, 
and particularly with the rural thing, mm. I think we're going to see a massive protest movement begin to move across the world, which has the potential as we move. So it's not just what we're seeing in Sri Lanka is also happening in Kenya. It's happening in Argentina. Um, Alberto Fernandez, I think, is the president of Argentina, you know, just sacked one of his key financial um, advisors. Um, you know, and there's people, you're seeing people around presidential palaces in many countries at the moment. Most of it is countries um, that you wouldn't sort of put in the sort of, uh, you know, it, well, you may expect that to happen. Like Argentina's had a lot of economic problems for a number of years. But I wonder whether we're going to see this coming together of these protest movements, but it's going to move from more identity politics stuff to now economic uh, populism and economic protest movements, which I think is going to be far bigger and possibly more disruptive. That's my prediction. That's my prediction. I can, you can come back in a year and mm. say I was wrong. Okay, so I'm going to pull back. What big themes are you guys seeing? What are the trend lines in all of this? Just going to flag, I've got some questions about your, your big theory let's that, go there let's go oh, there yeah, first. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder so you're you're saying you're thinking it'll move more from identity politics to economic um, issues do you think that like I'm thinking you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs yes do you think as as we become as things become more challenging in the world people end up going back to like the primary things that we need to survive yes is, is that what you're sort of yes. seeing that, that move from like all theoretical, like, yeah, identity-related stuff to actually if we don't have the financial capacity to exist, yes. this is going to be a problem, so we need to fight for it. Well, let me put it this way. So if you're a politician, you want to build a coalition. Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to win office with just a small faction. Mm. Now, I think we spoke about last week. One of the things that we're seeing is fragmentation everywhere, right? Even the left, uh, it, well, it, at the moment, you look at the Conservative Party, there's a battle for the Conservative Party leadership, which we spoke about at the beginning in the yeah. United Kingdom. There's multiple factions within the Conservative Party. Yes. You've got Rishi Sunak, who's sort of more, um, you know, the sort of left of the Conservative Party. Uh, uh, but then you've sort of got more, you know, figures who are part of this group, which is sort of, I think it's the European Research Group, ERG, who are like the right of the party. Mm -hmm. all, there's all these factions, multiple things. So everything's factualizing. That's happening on the left. It's less polarization now. It's fragmentation. But if you're a politician, you want to unite a coalition. The Democrats are struggling, I think, you know, because – in the US because they're sort of infighting between themselves. I think a, a last polling I saw a majority don't want Biden to go into the next election. So there'll be a battle. If it's not Biden, who's it going to be? Mm -hmm. You're a politician. You want to get a big coalition. How on earth do you do that in such fragmented times? You've got an issue coming down the road, which so many people can tie – Oh, sorry. Are, are going to be affected by Yeah, yeah. Yes. If, if you want to march a big flag and get as many people behind you as possible, economic inequality, inflation, mm. that's going to unite across racial divides, gender, you know, different groups in society, different geographic things. That's a very great thing to walk ahead with to get yeah. a massive coalition. Okay. So I think there's going to be – we're going to see economic populists come out mm -hmm. and and – say, oh, this is the moment when we can again, and this is sort of a grey zone moment. So grey zone is the fragmentation. Maybe the next phase is going to return to it being much more about economics, particularly as if the world heads into this sort of like ongoing choppy waters of the economy. Yeah. Okay. 
Thank you for answering that. Um, can you re-ask the question at the end? Oh, oh what yes. are the trend lines? What are the seeing? trend lines? And we're sort of talking about some of them here. Yes. Yes. Any others? I think uh, one that sort of stood out for me uh, when you were speaking about Sri Lanka early on is um, how networks uh, help create a space where tribalism can really take off. Yes. So you're seeing, uh, as you were talking about, these protest movements that are really well organised and they're taking advantage of the network to do that. Um, The other thing that I was also thinking about was – you know, we've talked a lot about supply chains and how the war in um, in Ukraine is affecting the price of fuel across the world. It's mm-hmm. um, and then you know, uh, climate change events are mm. affecting our ability to have lettuce. Uh, you know, mm. things like that. So small things, small disruptions can have really big impacts. And mm. I'm interested to sort of see how these protest movements are using that against the network. So Mm. they are creating small disruptions that then create very large implications. Yes. Um, Yes. So, yeah, it's it's using the network against itself kind of. Totally. And and even you think, so Sri Lanka, right, like you think about what's going on in Sri Lanka. First of all, um, you know, President Rajapaksa comes to power and in some ways he was in, religious or so he comes to power as a populist appealing to the 75 percent of the population who are Sinhalese predominantly Buddhist now a lot of people in the West don't know this but one thing that's been rising in the last sort of 10 years has been Buddhist nationalism sort of far-right Buddhism we've seen Mm. this in Myanmar um, and you've seen it in Sri Lanka and you've sort of got these internet YouTube uh, sort of firebrand monks and that yeah. began to happen. Now, he sort of jumped on that energy, comes into power. So, number one, that's connecting to a wider network of this sort of more militant Buddhism that's mm. growing in the world. Then secondly, he's connected into what's happening with China. So, Sri Lanka is affected by what China is doing. Yes. With the shift you know, away from Europe to the Indo-Pacific, they're caught up in that. Japan's been investing all this money in Sri Lanka because they see it as strategic. You know, mm. China, you know, all, all these different countries, uh, India. So Sri Lanka finds itself between the, the big sort of networked battle that's happening between India and China. Uh, the environment, another yes. network thing yeah, yeah. affects them. What's happening with inflation in the global economy, it affects them. What's happening with the war in Ukraine? Now, in the past, the war in Ukraine might not have affected Sri Lanka at all, perhaps 200 years ago, uh, but now it's deeply affected. Mm. So so there's, a, there's, a, there's an analogy here we've spoken about with churches that things on the other side of the world can now affect your church in yes. profound ways. Yes. Any organisation is now connected to everywhere. Everything that was far is now close. Yes. So I think that's one element of it. But I think you pull out another key network dynamic we've spoken about before is small inputs have big networked effects. Yes. Um, so that's what you're saying. And people are realising that, that I can affect huge parts of the world mm. by doing small actions here. I blockade um, – that gas plant there yeah. and it has effect. If, if you are watching, it is interesting, like there is a grey zone war happening, <laughs> um, you know, in the world, you know, where people are now like, so for example, you know, had a couple of fires at gas LNG plants in the US, which is some of the gas that Europe will need because yes. if Russia cuts off gas and you've got people going, oh, is this, is this cyber warfare? We know uh, uh, we're seeing some of that in the Middle East between Iran and Israel where stuff is blowing up. Everyone's like, why is this? Mm. So all of a sudden, you know, you press a button somewhere something blows up on the other side of the world and it has massive effects or you just simply park your 10 10 tractors in front of something and you can shut down something so 
people are realizing how networked we are and you're right, small inputs have massive effects. So that, that's a good uh, trend line. Daniel, mm. do you have any reflections? Yeah, some feels a bit unformed and perhaps bounces a little bit off of the, the Boris Johnson thing, but just around the uh, the dependence on government and not in a kind of libertarianism kind of way, but in are we seeing the cracks in some ways of like people kind of just having handed over everything to the government to give us what we need um, and when that's not being met or not being fulfilled how we expect this kind of this pushback or, or even unknown, like what do we do now? Like where do we put our hope? Mm. What's what's um, the future like? Future looks uneasy when you don't have a, a stable government. And yes, that kind of mm. stuff. Um, yeah, <clears throat> I think I think two things in that. I think number one is both Rajapaksa and Boris Johnson were populists, mm. um, and both sort of got the backing of the majority through these promises. Mm. Yet then again, it's campaigning and governing. Couldn't govern um, with it. So a populist who is super popular today is very unpopular tomorrow mm. if yes. they don't deliver. Um, so I, I think that's that's one element of it. And I think the second thing is too that populists often come into power because they're using the power of discontent, which is wonderful when you're in opposition or you're running a campaign. Mm. Yes. But then the power of discontent can come back on you. Yeah, yeah. And, and also like, you know, Sri Lanka has developed quite significantly, you know, in the last sort of 30, it comes out of a civil war, mm. begins to develop, you know, tourism grows, different stuff is growing. So expectations are rising. Expectations are around many countries in the world are rising. Now this is happening, we're, we're, so we've had ex accelerating uh, expectations, but now we're moving into a phase where they're not gonna be fulfilled. Mm. <laughs> If, if economies aren't working and we're in low growth or high interest rates or, you know, sorry, yeah, high interest rates, high inflation, economically choppy waters, massive debt, you know, all of this sort of stuff, there's a point where people are going to say, you promised this, mm. you know. So this is great time for revolutionary movements. Yeah. <laughs> um, by the way, Toyota, that's not me. I'm not advocating for a revolution. <laughs> Toyota, I want my car. Um, but yeah, so so for protest movements, there's a lot of fuel for them to sort of work with at this time. And in some ways, it's, it's worth noting, building on both those points that mm. you both made, um, the power in some ways is there's a power shift here. In a mm. network gray zone, yes. power, populists can gain power, but it can go so quickly. And it's interesting, if you go back to the original, one of the original examples of this was the Arab Spring and particularly the, you know, the overthrow of Mubarak in Egypt. You had this incredible networked protest, which was primarily run by, uh, uh, I think it was a Google engineer in, in who was actually wasn't even in Egypt. He was Egyptian, but he was sort of running it online through Facebook from um, UAE, I think, or Dubai maybe. And this massive, you know, network protest happens. Uh, was it Tahrir Square or whatever they, they, they took and, and then Mubarak falls. But then that protest movement doesn't have the institutional structure to actually create a government. And mm. then in comes Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood, who do have an you know, institutional structure, um, who are sort of authoritarian in their own way. And so that's going to be interesting as well. You know, will these movements be able to tear things down but struggle to build? Mm. It's yeah. going to be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be kind of my question. What happens now in, in Sri Lanka? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder if uh, we wind up there. We did have another 
topic to explore, but I think time-wise. Yes. Um, happy to hear otherwise from you, Mark. Oh no, no, I was, I was, I was. Can we put it in subscriber chats? Yes. Yeah, if yeah. Like okay. In subscriber more. chats, I will speak about uh, Shinzo Abe and the assassination of Shinzo Abe and what's happening in Japanese politics and media. Yeah. That will be in subscriber chats. Okay. So, so if you haven't subscribed, yeah. that's today's bonus. <laughs> yeah. So um, just on that, if you are listening and you want to know more about what we've talked about, any of the resources that have been mentioned, and if you want to hear us explore the um, – what's happened in Japan with Shinzo Abe and the assassination last week. Uh, we will do that in subscriber chat. So you can head to rebuilders.co and subscribe there. But I have one question, Dan, this one. Oh, yes. We've talked about trend lines and you guys have pulled out some fantastic trend lines. What are some biblical trend lines, the biblical narrative mm. filled with rich, rich metaphors and revelation and truth it's the spiritual lenses through which we view this stuff because there's an element where what people can do here is start to see these trend lines and what we're going to do is develop a great bunch of international analysts and news watchers (laughs) but what's unique about what we're trying to do is or not unique but what differentiates us as followers of jesus is we're trying to do this through biblical lenses yeah some of those outlines there what intersects with them and and biblical truth biblical narratives can I just end with a passage? Can you end that oh. discussion with a passage? <laughs> but I'm asking that question yeah. of you guys. Oh, so hold yeah. your passage. I'll hold but, my passage. Um, Liddy, go. I, Don't read the Bible. I re- <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> I think, we'll get to it. Um, one is, I guess, in, um, you know, I think of things like uh, the Tower of Babel um, mm. And other leaders throughout the mm. Old Testament who have, yeah, fallen because mm. their eyes were not set on mm. what what God was calling the nation, um, in particular of Israel, to. Yeah, it's a repeating. It's just a repeating tune in human yeah, history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's the Shakespearean king who. Yeah who has it all and throws it away. It's Saul, you know, Mm, and you see these people have these moments of incredible glory. They want to keep it going. Yeah. uh, But they can't, whether that's, you know, president of of Sri Lanka or the British prime minister. And, um, you know, humans, I think another element I would put in that is kings who often appeal to the crowd. Yes. You see Jesus, the king of kings, and he, he has compassion on the crowd. Yeah. But he never bends to the crowd. Jesus is not a populist. His sermons actually, he deliberately, you know, in, look at the beginning of Mark, he says, yes. you know, to the disciples, you know, I speak to them in parables, but I'm giving it to you you plainly here. And so it's really interesting that, yeah, I think Christians can't be populists. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and that thing of that always that temptation to power is always there. It's part of original sin. It's part of the human condition. Mm. I think also um, just on what you said, Christians can't be populist. They we are the remnant, right? Mm, and mm. a remnant is never yes. the mm. yeah. The, it's, it's never the mass. Yeah. No, yeah. So mm. others. I had the same thoughts as Liddy. <laughs> <laughs> so, can I add one too? It's yeah. really interesting. I, th- I might have mentioned it recently. I, you know, I read Francis Fukuyama's new book. Um, liberalism and its discontents. And he makes this interesting point. And Fukuyama, 
It's fascinating because, you know, as far as I've read, he's not a believer. In fact, I'm pretty sure he's not. But even he makes the point that so much of liberal democracy's foundations, and Tom Holland argues this sort of thing similar in his book Dominion, that it comes from a Christianity's basic recognition of people are creating the image of God. Mm. You know, and some of these ideas today that that you know people hold of, you know, the equality of people, the worth of individuals, human dignity, you know, comes from from that sense. And I think you realize reading reading Fukuyama's book, one of the things I sort of sensed, and he's not necessarily saying this, is that we could only sort of pull off these societies, which yes, they had flaws because they're not the kingdom of God, but a lot of what was assumed in these systems was Christian formation mm. and Christian virtue. And we're seeing those systems unravel, you know, when you don't have people who have that connected, you know, like form, formed, you know, it was building on Christian character. Yes. I think it's Christian characters ebbed away and it's been unable to be sustained by just cultural Christianity and so on. Um it's not a shock, you know. Um, I heard Rory Stewart, who was a contender against Boris Johnson um, in the last leadership election or whatever, he went up against him in, in a podcast. And, and, he, and he talked about the fact that, you know, he's known him from that sort of Oxbridge, upper-class English world. But he said he was a very gifted child, super smart, and obviously at 14 sort of stopped trying because everyone was just telling him how good he was. Yeah. He didn't have to get anything, you know, and you mm. realise there's a lack of formation. At 14, he stops growing and in some ways you're seeing that, you know, sort of like, and that again, I don't want to just pick on Boris. There's, you could say that about so many people in mm. so many different fields. You know, character matters, but Christian character is ultimately what matters. And, you know, you think about, you know, even scripture, you know, says character, I think Trudy said this the other day we were talking to, she said character leads to hope. Mm. Yeah. The world is hopeless, as in I'm not saying the world is hopeless, but the world is has a deficit of hope because there is a deficit of Christian character in the world. Mm. And Christian character is incredibly healing. Mm. Any other big themes? I think, well, I mean, one thing that you've talked about a lot for many years is renewal. Yes. And... I mean, it's something we've said so many times on this podcast, but crisis precedes renewal. Mm. There mm. is great precedence for that mm. if you look throughout the whole entire biblical narrative, if you look through the history of the church. Mm. This could be another one of those moments, mm. or we pray that it is, mm. you know. And particularly we'd love to pray, you know, sort of um, this is a spoken prayer. You know, you think about a nation like Sri Lanka and, you know, I think God has his his hand on, mm. you know, nations like, like Sri Lanka and the prayer that through this the church can step into renewal and serve the people. I know that the attacks of 2019 were so difficult for the church, which finds itself as a minority religion with a Buddhist and a Hindu majority. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I think of, um, you know, many fine Sri Lankan Christians and, you know, we have many Sri Lankans here in Melbourne mm. and um, who are part of the church. And, you know, I, I just think of, you know, my prayer is is for that nation and, and what God can do through this moment and that crisis can lead to renewal, um, I think is, is yeah, really, really key. Mm. And, and just one other thing I'd like to add too is I think my prediction around a uh, – large-scale uh, protest movement across the world around economic injustice 
is one of the things I think has characterized the contemporary left and there's all these battles, woke versus non-woke and blah, 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 is that one of the things I think which has characterized because the contemporary left has it's ignored the issue of economic poverty. Mm. And I think the, the issue of economic poverty is so such a crucial thing that we see in the scriptures. God has yes. a heart for the poor. Yes. And, and you know, we broaden that out and, yes, you can sort of do that, but so much of that is actually the economic poor. And I think, you know, it's a reminder for the church and societies, you can't forget the economically poor. Mm. And there's an opportunity for the church to step into in that point part and, you know, talk about this stuff, you know. Yeah. No one talks about the fact of, you know, it's like class and and, and those who are struggling in, in poverty. It's so uncool to talk about now. And I even know, you know, I've spoken to people in Christian organisations who, you know, uh, trying to deal with that and they feel like now they've got to couch it in all these other terms, you know what I mean? They can't actually go before government and say, we're actually just trying to help the poor. Um, so I think, yeah, remembering the poor is something uh, the early church said to each other, encourage Paul mm. uh, to rem- and Barnabas, remember the poor in what you're doing. Mm. I think that's, that's a word mm. for the church, a word for the world at this point in time. Mm, that's good, mm. yeah. Mm. Is your passage... <laughs> yeah, your passage. <laughs> oh, I'll, ta- I'll take us out. Yeah. Um, James 1, verse 2 to 5. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let's, let perseverance finish, finish its work so that you may, may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Amen. Oh, 